Amen. Thank you. At this time, we're going to uh, read the word of the Lord together. Again, we've been going through the book of James, and James loves for his people, his readers, to recite the word of the Lord aloud together. That's how the book was originally written, and uh, let's do this together. So in your bulletin, there's an insert, or if you have your Bible, you can read from there or off the screen. Uh, this is from the English Standard Version, James 1, 19 to 21. This is the word of the Lord. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we come to hear your word this morning, would you speak to us directly, directly to our soul in a unique and personal way. Lord, we know that your word does not return empty or void, but accomplishes the purpose for which you have sent it. So Lord, we pray that be the case this morning by your Holy Spirit. Amen. As we start this morning, I, I want to talk about the difference between intellectually knowing something and feeling something. And just to kind of get us off the ground, I'll give you a, an experience to think through. Imagine you're sitting in your house and all of a sudden you get really intense stomach pain. You get a sharp pain in your stomach and you just begin to feel that tummy ache, as we call it in our house. I think all of us have had a stomach ache or a stomach bug or pain in our stomach at some point in our life. You begin to feel like something is not right with your body. You have a pain, an irritability, a symptom of something that doesn't feel right. But if you're not a doctor, if you haven't gone to medical school, you don't necessarily know what's wrong. So in our modern day, maybe you'll get on WebMD or Google and try to figure out, okay, these are what I'm feeling. This is my symptoms. Now I'm trying to figure out what is going on. Maybe it's a little thing. Maybe it's a big thing. And you realize that maybe, maybe that chicken you had for dinner wasn't fully cooked. Or maybe that, that something in your cabinet was a little past the expiration date. And you begin to realize that something has gone wrong. Or maybe you go to the doctor and they tell you, actually, you're developed an allergy for a certain type of food you've been eating a lot of lately. And you begin to know why you were feeling so bad. And the reason I bring that out this morning is because the first two words of James 19, 1.19 is the words, know this. Know this, my beloved brothers, is what he says. And so James wants us to know something intellectually that we probably already feel. He wants us to press deeper into understanding something so that we can find the solution for how not to experience that any longer. And primarily what he's talking about this morning is the problem of anger. All of us feel anger in our life 
Anger is a normal emotion. Anger is part of our reality as human beings for a number of reasons that we're going to press into today. But what James is primarily wanting us to learn about this morning is not the experience of anger, but the knowing about it, knowing what anger does, so that when we begin to feel that symptom of anger, we can move beyond it into something better, into something more godly, into something purer. I did some research on anger this week and was, uh, in one sense, unsurprised, but in another sense, really disappointed. There's an article in the Washington Post in June of 2020. The name of the article was, Americans are living in a big anger incubator. Let me just read a couple of sentences. This is a quote from uh, a guy named Raymond Novako, a psychology professor at the University of California, Irvine. He says, we're living in effect in a big anger incubator. And, he's, and there's another psychiatrist who says that the country is now dealing with three disasters superimposed on top of one another, the pandemic, the economic fallout, and civil unrest. Certainly one way of responding and a common way of responding is anger, he says. And to go deeper, it says surveys over the past few years have suggested that anger has risen in the country even before the 2020 pandemic and all these crises. It says in 2018, for example, it concluded that Americans' stress, worry, and anger had intensified that year, where it went from 17% of people feeling anger on any given day to 22%. And so the summary is anger is a problem, and it's a problem that is widespread and growing in our country and in our world. And I think it's probably becoming more normalized in our culture to where now it's almost just expected that anger will come. And I think we've even, if, if you watch the news at all, or if you watch presidential debates in the last several terms, you see that anger actually has been normalized to the point where it's not, we're not mad at people getting angry anymore. Now it's just, what are they angry about? But on the one hand, there's some positives to anger. As I've mentioned already, anger is normal. It's a normal emotion and it's not in and of itself sinful. And so you, you can't avoid it or pretend to not get angry. Anger does happen. And it's one that can be used constructively for good purposes. It can create a passion to spur you on to good things. So for instance, anger towards injustice in the world or anger towards racism or anger towards sin. Those are good positive uses of anger that spur you towards doing positive work in society. But there are some real dangers of anger too, right? It can create violence, rage, judgment of others, isolating yourself, and certainly just not being happy or filled with joy. And particularly when anger gets directed at another image bearer of God, another person, that's when ultimately it begins to turn twisted. Anger erodes your soul is one way you can say it. We sang earlier, bless the Lord, O my soul. Anger, as we're going to learn this morning, actually is the inverse of blessing. And you can look back at the beginning. As, as, soon, as soon as sin entered the world, one of the first stories right afterward is Genesis chapter 4. And it's the story of Cain and Abel. And it says here that jealousy 
entered in, and that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Normal emotion. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted as well? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. The first bout with anger and biblical recorded history resulted in murder because sin was crouching at your door unless you learn to master over it. Ecclesiastes says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So the call for us this morning is how do we not be a fool and let anger get so lodged into our heart that we sin and that we kill, whether in metaphor or in real life. So what are Christians to do? I'm going to give a couple of ways that Christians can encounter anger in a biblical, pure way. So what are we to do when anger comes? Because anger does come into our own heart, into our own soul. I'm going to give you three counter-cultural ways to engage anger well. Number one, Adjust to a countercultural pace. Adjust to a countercultural pace. I want you to think about why you get angry. What is it that makes you really angry in life? The root of so much anger, according to James and the world as we see it, I think, is the pace in which we allow our lives to live. If you look at verse 19, In James, it says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Three words there, quick and then slow is repeated twice. Both of those are pace words. They have to deal with how fast or how slow we are living our life. And so how does the world encourage us to live? At what pace does the world encourage us to live? The answer is very easily quick. The world moves us fast. I mean, some cultures move us faster than others. Some cities move us faster than others. If you live in a place like Salem or Boston, you got to move fast. If you live in a place like Hampton Falls or Exeter, New Hampshire, you move a little bit slower. But still, the world moves at a fast pace. And the world encourages us, frankly, to be slow to listen. And again, I, I'll say this for the second time already today. Just watch, the, watch a replay of the last presidential election or most likely watch the next presidential election debates. Slow to listen. Slow to listen and on the contrary, quick to speak up for yourself. We often speak up so quickly in order to get our opinion in or to make our voice heard because we don't want to let others dictate who we are. And so we're encouraged as a society to be quick to speak up for ourselves, quick to talk. And this, frankly, encourages us to be quick to anger. If I disagree with someone, I quickly jump in to anger or to interrupt or to cancel a person. 
and then say, I don't even need that person in my life because they made me angry. One of the first lessons we have to teach children, and certainly this was the case in my family, when they learn to speak, one of the first lessons you teach them is not to interrupt because they get so excited that they can speak that they, they speak all the time, especially over you. We learn this from a young age that quick to speak is much more natural than slow to speak. And it's the same with anger. How do you temper anger? So the summary is we're just in a rush. Often we're moving so fast that that actually perpetuates a rising anger deep in our souls. So what's the countercultural pace that James offers? It's the opposite of what I just said. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. What does it mean to be quick to listen? It means to be eager to hear someone else's thoughts. It means to be eager to hear someone else's thought. Just let that sink in for a moment of, I think that takes a lot of intentionality of, I really want to hear what you have to say. That's not just slowing your pace, that's actually building dignity for how you view other people. I want to hear what you have to say, and I'm gonna let you say it all. And when you're finished, maybe you'll ask me what I think. We've, we've lost the art of listening as a society. Engaging someone in dialogue with full intentionality, seeing someone as a person and not just a debate object, not trying to push someone down, but lifting them up by listening, by simply opening ourselves to hear them. Then being slow to speak means being teachable, moldable, adjustable, flexible, Conscious to realize that you can learn from other people. I don't want you to hear me saying at all, and I don't think James is saying this, that it's not good to have opinions or to, to share those opinions. He is saying that, but he's saying there's a right time for it. And there's a way to dialogue and to experience conversation and listening to others in a good way. And so when you do speak up, it should be full of grace and love, compassion, understanding, repentance, and forgiveness. I'll, I'll offer a passage for you just to go back and read later. It's Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32. It's one of the most beautiful examples of how to speak in the Bible. And again, most of us learned to speak when we were two, three, four years old. And we've moved on. The Bible actually has a lot to say about how to speak. Not just the, the literal getting words out, but then how do you use those words? James talks about the tongue being like a, like a flaming fire that can set a whole forest ablaze if not used well. So as adults, may we never lose the, learn, the learnability of how to speak. And so read the rest of James, but then go to Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, and just listen to what he says about speaking. So the summary of that first point is slow down. Take a deep breath. And if you're going to be quick in anything, be quick in slowing down and listening. Says the guy who's talking and you all are listening. We have a lot to learn. I have a lot to learn from you all. And that's why church is always going to be more than just the sermon on Sunday morning because we have to listen to one another well. 
just as you all are so graciously listening to me. Number two, the second countercultural thing we can do is to trust a countercultural, I'll call it a mode of productivity. A countercultural mode of productivity. What do you mean by that? I couldn't think of a more simple way to put that. What I'm trying to say is this the world encourages production or making of things in one way, but James is encouraging us towards the production or the making of something in a tr- totally countercultural way. Let me explain that a little bit. Verse 20 says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So I'll ask you the question back to you now. What are you trying to produce? With the way you live your life, with the decisions you make, with the personality that you choose to live into, with the way you speak or listen to others, what are you trying to produce with your life? Because how you manage your anger and use your words determines what you will produce. And if anger often equals passion, then what is your passion aiming to produce, maybe? Is anger actually helping you to accomplish some kind of goal, or is it taking it away? The world says that anger produces drive or motivation to do better. It makes you strong and bold. We live, just as we live in a fast-paced world, we also live in a hyper-productive world where we love to make things happen. We love to see results of things. And we've actually tricked ourselves into seeing that anger can be productive. And if, you, if you're maybe struggling to hear that point, think about a work environment you've lived in. Most of you have probably had a number of different work jobs in your life and different work settings. And think about the way that the person over you has treated you or motivated you to do your job. Have any of you ever had an angry boss? I think we probably all have. And anger has been used as a motivation for you to get things done. Do better, you're not doing enough. If you don't do better, I'm gonna have to let you go. Anger has become a motivation for folks uh, in their workplace. And so if if anger makes you successful as a business, go for it. Or think of a sports coach. I have this memory etched in my mind of a basketball coach in the late 80s, early 90s, who was famous for being an angry coach, but his teams won. So people overlooked it. And it wasn't until he literally put his hands around the neck of one of his players that people finally began to speak up and saying, I don't think this is the best way to coach college athletes and they finally fired him. But this was after he threw a chair across the basketball court in anger one day, and people laughed at it because his team won. Anger has been culturally accepted to produce things. As long as it's producing things, it can be glossed over. But James says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So Christian, so follower of God, if your goal in life is the righteousness of God, which That is what we should be living our life for. Anger does not produce that. The anger of man does not produce that. I just made a big comment there. I said the whole purpose of your life is the righteousness of God. Let me just zoom in on that for a moment. The whole purpose of life is to live into the righteousness of God. Now that's a big churchy word, churchy phrase that I don't want us to miss here. 
What is the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God is a lifelong project. And it could be a whole sermon series in and of itself. But I'm going to direct us just to a couple of ways to understand this before we get to our last point. The righteousness of God is what God already is. God is gracious, loving, perfect, and holy. He always has been, always will be. And the righteousness of God is not what we can be on our own because of our sin, brokenness, and frailty. The righteousness of God is what God has that he alone can give to us. So I'd like to read Romans 3, 21 to 26. And again, this is one of these core passages that if you memorize this in your life, you will never be wrong for it. Romans 3, 21 and following. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to, he, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness of God is what God gives us, the free gift of salvation, relationship with God, reconciliation with himself and others, and as a result of that, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, And that does not include anger anywhere. God has passed over his anger towards us in sin and by his grace gives us the righteousness of God. Our anger does not spur us to passion to then attain the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is the gift. And so what is this countercultural mode of productivity then? If it's not anger that leads to success, then it's releasing anger as any kind of productivity model and falling headfirst into the hands of a gracious and loving God and trusting that he is producing in us what we cannot produce in ourselves, which is the free gift of righteousness. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ sees as the ultimate productivity model, looking at the cross, falling headfirst in faith into what he has done for us. The gospel is the best productivity model because it's all God's work and it's not yours. All he asks of us is faith. Faith in his grace. Therefore, verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We've already sung, bless the Lord, O my soul. And the passage here leads us to this culminating area of the soul. That the soul is what James is after. Your soul can, is at stake here and it can be saved, but not by anger and not by anything you do, but alone by the implanted word. Here's the thing about implanted things. You can't plant it. 
It's implanted. It's placed in you. And God is offering to place it in your soul to give you life by his life-giving word. And that implanted word grows into the fruit of the spirit, which slowly erodes the anger that the world looks after and replaces it with the fruits of the spirit. And this is able to save your soul, it says. Save you from sin, save you from this world, save you from eternal condemnation, save you from yourself, save you from a life of anger, and save you into the kingdom of God. As one person puts it, the will of God is not a burden to bear, but a pillow to rest on. Again, fall headfirst into that pillow. And as Martin Luther says, blessed is he who submits to the will of God because he can never be unhappy. Another way you could put it, you could say he will never let anger overtake him. So how do you receive this? This is the last countercultural thing to consider. Embrace a countercultural way, capital W way. Embrace a countercultural way. What's the way that James leads us to? He mentions here to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. So we could put the emphasis on that, you know, put away the bad things. And there's a place for that. But I'm going to emphasize really just the other word here that's mentioned. Meekness. A, A synonym for that would be gentleness. Embrace gentleness. That's the countercultural way that James is encouraging us to live. That puts away anger, put on gentleness. This means to not be an arguer or not be angry about cultural wars or cultural status, but instead be gentle people. And I think if there's one word I would, if if I were standing in front of the whole church in the world today and someone said, Stephen, what would you say to the whole church at one time? I would say, can we put on gentleness? The gentleness of Jesus? Again, our Sunday school class, which we're starting again next week. Jesus says, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I, Jesus, am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Gentleness is countercultural today. And if the church can learn to be gentle, it can make a world of difference. Receiving God's love and grace out of a heart of humility, being content with his plan, being under control always, and reflecting the heart of Jesus, which he self-describes as gentle. James later in James three seventeen says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And as one of the church fathers from 1700 years ago said, there is scarcely any other virtue which demons fear as much as gentleness. If you want to scare the willy out of a demon, be gentle. Be gentle, because that's what the righteousness of God produces. It's not, it's not what Christians should be doing to wrestle with the anger of the world. George Bernard Shaw has a great quote. He says, never mud wrestle with a pig because you'll both get dirty, but the pig will enjoy it. 
And that's if we try to wrestle with the world with anger, we're both going to get mad, but they're going to enjoy it. The world's going to enjoy it. So what's the better way? Be gentle. Be gentle with the world. We finish with a, a story here. I mentioned a few weeks ago the missionary C.T. Studd, which again, he's worth knowing just because he has the best missionary name that I know. But I, I finished a biography of his recently, and he, he has this story. So he, he was a missionary all over the world, but he finished his missionary career by going as a pioneer missionary to inland Africa. So the inner part of Africa, got away from the coast and came all the way to the center. And in the center of Africa, this is 100 years ago, 120 years ago, there were many cannibalistic people. And they were described as people who had filed their teeth to sharp points. That's how they had lived their life. And he went to be a missionary amongst a lot of people who were that way. And C.T. Studd, ironically, was he had a lot of teeth problems as he got older. And so his teeth were decaying. But he was in Africa in the early 1900s, and he couldn't get his teeth fixed. And so someone finally said, they said, C.T., you should fly back to Great Britain and get your teeth fixed. And he famously said, if God wants me to get new teeth, he'll send me new teeth to Africa. And sure enough, a couple of years later, God sent a dentist as a missionary to Africa, to his village where he was living, and he brought him new teeth. So he pulled out the old ones, gave him new teeth, and he put them in. And you can imagine these African tribal people had never seen false teeth before. So when, from one day to the next, he goes from a guy with teeth falling out to a guy with shiny, bright, perfect teeth. They were a little astonished. And again, put it in the cannibal context here too. They were really astonished. And so CT is a, he is a guy of humor. He loved practical jokes. And one day um, he, he put the lower plate, he, he, he only put the lower plate in without pressing it into position. And when some of the African workers came in, he sat on a stool, took out a pair of pliers and pulled out the eight teeth with one pull. And he said the expression on their face was unforgettable. But he loved to play tricks on him by taking his teeth out and then they would be worried that someone had stolen his brand new teeth. I think the image works for us with gentleness. God has given us a beautiful countercultural, shocking way to relate to the world and it's through gentleness. And if we take them out, if we take off gentleness, just as CT took out his teeth, it should be shocking and grotesque to the world. And the world has seen examples of that in the last several years. And so the call for us, let it begin with Salem. May we be the most gentle people that your friends know. And may they see Jesus because of it. G.K. Chesterton says it on the front of your bulletin. A faith is that which is able to survive a mood. And the faith in Jesus survives the moodiness of anger and is sustained by receiving gentleness. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word this morning, we pray that you would make us a gentle people. Teach us to be countercultural in the most beautiful way that alone comes from you giving us what we cannot be ourselves. So Lord, when we get angry, when anger comes our way, Lord, may the Holy Spirit make us gentle, content in all things, able to receive 
your fullness, even while feeling the emotion of rising anger. May we be fueled by the love of Jesus who showed us how to be gentle and yet still passionate and fulfilling your purpose. We trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.